Now Wolfhorn. It seems like it's pretty common to hear people talk or maybe even rant about what you shouldn't look at. And less common to hear people talk about what you should look at. I don't know why that is. I think we could speculate from what we've learned, let's say, about Yira and Ahava, right? What you shouldn't look at, that's an aspect of awe, holding back, not doing something you shouldn't do. Whereas when you do something, that's an aspect of Ahava, of love. Love is a giving out. So you need to have the Yira. It's a more serious violation if someone's violating the Yira than if they're not performing on the Ahava side. So that could be why there's a focus there. I think sometimes it's easier also. It's a lot easier to look at something and say, no, that's wrong, than it is to think about, well, what should you be doing? And especially if you're trying to express that to other people, because it's kind of personal. So the things that are wrong, it's more obvious and they're more generalizable. You know, one should not look at Playboy magazine, okay? But now you're going to say, well, what should somebody look at? And you're trying to tell someone what they should do. Well, it kind of depends where they're holding, right? So for somebody who's watching movies that are really inappropriate, maybe watching Disney movies is making a choice that's an elevated choice. But maybe for someone who's watching Disney movies, maybe it's a more elevated choice to say, you know, the messages in Disney movies are not necessarily wholesome, even if they somehow have a reputation for being wholesome. So maybe they're giving me the wrong ideas that are messing up my relationships. Maybe I'm going to choose only to watch nature documentaries. And maybe for someone who's watching nature documentaries, they might say, well, this is really amazing, and, um, and it fills my mind with information that's more real and useful, but maybe I don't actually get drawn closer to God. Maybe I do a little bit because I say, wow, that's amazing. I think if you open the microwave door, it will stop doing that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe when I watch these documentaries, um, I'm a little bit lifted closer to God because I think, wow, look what an amazing world this is. Um, but maybe that's outweighed by the message that's being given by the movies, which are that it's amazing, but it isn't about God that it happens on its own. So maybe that's undermining, you know, at each phase where you are. So then another person might say, well, maybe I don't want to watch the movies. Maybe what I should be doing is reading. So because when I'm reading, even if I were reading a book made out of the images from the nature documentary, but when you're reading, you tend to also be um, still engaged with your critical thinking. Whereas when you're watching a movie, you tend not to be engaged with your critical thinking. This is part of what we're getting at, right? And the idea that the, what you see tends to go straight to your feelings. Whereas when you read, even though you're seeing the words, the words are turning into language, not into visual images as much, and therefore you're still able to think critically and say, no, I don't agree with that. I think I'll close this book, I'll move, right? And then a person might say, well, you know, I think what I would rather do is read something that doesn't have any undermining message, but is neutral. So maybe I'll read books about the history of mathematics or something like that, where it's not touching on something that I have to, I have to um, counteract in some way. 
and I'll choose to read something that will fill my mind with information about the real world. And then a person might say, well, I noticed that um, I would like to read on Shabbos books about Jewish ideas. And that way, the, the headspace that I'm in in my mind, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but on Shabbos, if you pick up a book that's, let's say, a novel, not Jewish, a novel, and you read it, you haven't been Michal Shabbos, and it might even be, it, depending on what kind of book and depending on who's poskening, because there's different opinions on this, it might be considered an Onik Shabbos. Part of the pleasure of Shabbos that you're relaxing and reading the book. But I, have you ever noticed it, that there's this moment just as you're closing a book where you're in the place where the book was? You're not in the time and place. I don't mean that you were so absorbed in it, but your brain was not in Shabbos. Your brain is not monitoring the fact that it's Shabbos. There's a kind of a, it's almost like a proprioceptive sense. Proprioception is the way that your mind, even with your eyes closed, knows where your leg is, where your hand is. It knows where it is. There's a kind of monitoring that our minds do all the time about certain things. So we t you know where we talked about this was with Kedusha and Tahara. We talked about this at some point, probably last time we went through Vayikra, the idea that in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, people were always aware of whether there were Tameh or Tahor. At least if you lived near the Beis HaMikdash or if you were a Kohen or if you were one of the people who's described as more righteous, who was careful to only eat when they were Kadosh. So you had this kind of constant monitoring which we're not accustomed to, except in a couple of areas. We are accustomed to being aware of that in our mind with Nida. Women do kind of have in their minds if they're Tame or Tahor when it comes to Nida. And with washing for bread. You wash your hands and you're keeping your mind on the fact that your hands are clean until you eat. Now most of the time, if you ask me, are my hands not tummy, I would have a little, tr I don't know, did I scratch my hair? Did I reach under my shirt and fix something? Did I, it's hard to say. I'm not monitoring it. But when I wash my hands for bread, I do. I do monitor my hands until I eat. I'm just only accustomed to doing it for a very short time, so it's a little trickier. But that's all it is. So there is this kind of monitoring, and we do it about the days also. So you know that feeling where you wake up and you're like, what day is it and where am I? I used to travel a lot. And I had this little game with myself before I opened my eyes. Could I remember where I was before I opened my eyes? Because it's so disoriented. I'd be like, I'd open my eyes and I'm like, what country is this? Where am I? What day is it? What am I doing? Is it who's with me? Is it just me? Is there a baby here? You know, there was this kind of like wake up and I didn't know where I was going to be. And so it's. It's a kind of monitoring that we it's have. It's something that mothers do all the time. It's like, I yeah. know exactly where all my kids are. Where are the kids? Are and your mind kind of runs through in your mind. Where are they? Where? I remember that from when we first got married. I remember all of a sudden there was a little piece of my mind thinking, where's Robert? Uh -huh. And being surprised right. by that. And it was a nice feeling. Right. But I was surprised by it because I'd never seen that before. And that happens with the babies too, yeah. So this comes back to if you've ever had the experience of reading a book that was just sort of a novel... And you sort of swim up out of it into Shabbos and realize, oh, it's Shabbos. And there's a little tiny drop of surprise, because just a little one, because you hadn't been thinking about that. That doesn't happen when you read a Jewish book, well, even if it's a Jewish novel. 
it tends to be you come back out of it, and because you are in a world where Shabbos is in there, somehow you don't lose track of that. So a person might say on Shabbos, I'm going to read books about Jewish ideas so that I can... Now, that's, this has already moved into a whole different level because it stops being about what I'm not reading, which is bad for me, and starts being about something that I want to be thinking about. So we've somehow crossed over a boundary between things you shouldn't look at and things you should look at, so to speak, or it's not looking at over here, but things that are negatives and therefore you must avoid them, that's Yira, to things that are positive, where you feel like you want to be part of that. You want to keep the feeling of Shabbos. You want to keep your mind, you know, on, let's say, on Tisha B'Av, on reading material that's appropriate to generally to gullus or destruction, even if you're trying to keep your mind off how hungry you are, because you don't, you're not trying to escape where you are. You're trying to fully experience it. And that comes from Ahava. And I think that that's in part why you don't hear so many people give speeches about you know, uh, what you should be doing. Also because if you try and say it, it, it's almost impossible because every one of us is in a different place. We're all holding, even, even within my, oneself, within myself, from day to day and from week to week, when I'm choosing, I'm going to pick something up, there's a certain relative aspect to that. Am I picking up a book instead of watching a video? That's a step up, even if the book is just, doesn't have any special value to it. On the other hand, if I'm picking that same book up instead of sitting down to read the Parsha, if that's really what the choice was in my mind, usually it's not something like that. There's usually more increments in between. Picking up, um, I don't know, a Harry Potter book instead of um, a Jewish novel, let's say like that, or picking up a Jewish novel instead of picking up a fiction, a nonfiction book, picking up a nonfiction book instead of picking up a Jewish Torah book, that's usually somehow the range, and you kind of have to get to know yourself so that when you reach for something, you say, hold on, what am I choosing? But that's, I said that wrong, you don't have to do that. That comes from wanting to. It's not having to, it's wanting to. And that is a statement of Hashem, I want to be closer to you. I want to be a little greater than I am in this moment. Can I push it up one notch? Just one. If you push it too far, it won't work. Because probably when you picked up the book, anyway, you were trying to escape a little bit, which is normal. That's fine. Like You need to relax. You need to unwind. Like, that's good. But, but can, I, can I achieve that? in a way that chooses something a little bit more. And that comes from wanting to, which is, of course, really what we're supposed to be learning about here in the Parsha of Tzitzis. How do we serve Hashem because we want to? Not because we have the Sarin Onish hanging over us. That's Vahaya. This is we've gone past Vahaya and we've already realized we're making a commitment to wanting to be a little greater and to wanting to be more and to wanting to be more close to Hashem and to live with Him more. So now we got to know how to do it. And what's interesting is that the Torah over here did not say, therefore, don't look at. The Torah starts by saying, look at. Look at. 
because the message over here, one second. The message over here is how how can I live a little higher? So, or isem, or isem also. See it, look at it. And Rav Hirsch puts it like this. He he does even explicitly mention that it's with reference to the message of Tzitzis, even though it's in his Torah perush on Gracious. He says, Has not God given you in yourself, in your own nature, a light and a guide, your eye and your heart? Not, don't trust your eyes, don't trust your heart, don't look at anything. Don't. That's not what the Torah tells us. The way Rav Hirsch says it is, Hashem has given you eyes and given you a heart in order to use them. But you got to use them the right way. You have to know what to look at. So that's the beginning of, I would say that's kind of the introduction to today's topic. Looking. And this, this is powerful. Has not God given you in yourself, in your own nature, a light and a guide, your eye and your heart? All of that comes from the approach of Ahava, not Yira. That's Ahava. Because Yira would say, no, 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 I'm afraid to trust myself. I'm afraid to, you know, I don't want to go with that. I don't and, and the Ahava comes and says, what have I got inside of me? What is valuable? What is working? How do I use that in my Avodah Hashem? Not turning it off, turning it on. Okay. So why vision? I'm just going to bring a few sources because I feel like we've, we've talked about the topic of vision before, but here's a few sources on this. The Vilna Gaon, um, I saw this quoted elsewhere. You can tell because it says it's from his Bayer Latikune HaZohar. <laughs> I'm trying to think where I saw it because I definitely was not reading the Vilna Gaon's commentary on the Zohar. Um, but I don't see a note where I saw it. Oh, it looks like I saw it, here we go, in the Edrate Zone, which is the Sefer on Megillas Rus. He quoted this in another context, and I thought it was interesting for here. Bire'iya achas, what is it about vision? Bire'iya achas, with one look, yecholim liros, mashi'i efshar lishmoa bizman gadol. You can take in an amount of understanding and information with one look, that it would take a real, that you couldn't get even with a very long amount of listening. So you get somebody who's trying to describe, you know, a painting to you. One look at the painting, you know, say a picture is worth a thousand words, it's worth way more than a thousand words. The ha-ri'iya Furthermore, what you see is not forgotten quickly. The impression that it makes in your mind tends to be much greater and much longer lasting, more durable. Um, oh, he says, just like a person who sees, it's, uh, there's a missing letter here, one of, his, one of his acquaintances after a long time. You usually manage to recognize them anyway. You can see something that you recognize even after a long time. <coughs> Furthermore, feelings of love and hatred tend to get entrenched through what one sees and this is all not, this may have been news in the time of the Vilna Gaon, but we live in a communication society. And this is well-known marketing information. I don't think any of us are surprised to hear any of this, right? That 
feelings, passionate feelings like love and hatred are much, much more likely to be uh, triggered and established, meaning triggered in a way that it will be difficult to change that feeling, but based on what you see. As it says about Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayar es ha'egel. He saw the golden calf when he came down. God told him about the golden calf. And Moshe says, uh, you know, we're not supposed to speak Lashon Hara. Let me go look. And he goes down and he looks and wow. I mean, the, when you look at the outcomes of Moshe seeing the golden calf, right? He broke the luchos. He ground the calf up, mixed it with water, made people drink it. And there was a killing of, I don't know what, 3,000, maybe more. There were quite a lot of people that were killed as a result of this. He was affected more by seeing it than by what God said to him. Now that's the Vilna Gon saying it, so, okay. I understand that that statement on its own does not seem to perfectly uh, correspond with what we've talked about in the Parsha Shurim about Sadiqim, that Hashem's word is as if they're seeing it in reality. There it is. That's a separate discussion why you would have that, but okay. And furthermore, seeing something gives a lasting clarity to understanding the situation, usually more than just hearing about it. Okay. Now, all of these, then, are the power, their non-judged power of sight. Meaning, there's areas where other senses have an advantage, these are the strengths of vision, but they're also the dangers. They're, and obviously, and I think we're maybe even more accustomed to the dangers, mm-hmm. as I said before, of vision, and we're not so accustomed to following this verse, which says, Ur-i-se-moso. See them. Hashem. And remember all the mitzvahs of Hashem and do them. You know, that's pretty powerful. If we have a tool, to help us remember God and do all the mitzvahs? Shouldn't we want to use it? <laughs> I'm so much trouble always finding our Yitzhahara. So how are we supposed to keep, keep all the mitzvahs? Are you kidding? How would you do it? That's what Rehearsed said, right? Has not God given you in yourself, in your own nature, a light and a guide? He gave us tools for this, and this is a powerful one. Okay, so here's an example of what we said from the Gemara and Menachos, that seeing leads to remembering, right? To thinking about an idea, understanding idea, and thinking or remembering the idea leads to action. Here's an example. In Avos de Rabbi Nasan, what was the beginning of Rabbi Akiva? We know this story. We've mentioned it before. I'm not going to run up for my visual aid, even though this would also be an appropriate time <laughs> to have a rock, you know, to look at. Amru. Ben Arboim Shanahaya. They say he was 40 years old, and he had learned nothing. It's interesting, because when you hear what they, how they speak with him, the definition of learning nothing seems to have been a little different than what we would have called someone who's completely unlearned. One time he was standing near a well. And he said, I don't know why it says it's a be'er. And he says, who carved out this stone? And they said to him, It's the water that constantly falls upon it every day. 
Amrulo, they said to him, Akiva, Akiva, Yetzah Kori Avonim Sachaku Ma'im. Don't you know the Pasuk that the, the, the water plays over the stones from Eov? In other words, they expect he would at least know a Pasuk from Eov. Like, you couldn't be that ignorant. Miyad, and by the way, the, the Avos Rabbi Nassim doesn't suggest he didn't. Right? But what you know in terms of hearing or reading doesn't have the same kind of impact as what you know from what you see. Miyad, immediately, Haya Rabbi Akiva, Dan Kal Vechomer Ba'atzmo. So hearing that verse, but with this stone in front of him, he immediately judged a Kal Vechomer on himself. What's a Kal Vechomer, right, is a logical construct where you say, if this, then even more so, something else. So he realized there was a Kal Vechomer on himself. Marach Pesel Es Hakoshe, just like something soft, can carve into something hard, meaning water can carve through stone if you give it long enough and you consistently keep applying water. Divrei Torah shekashen kibarzel, then Divrei Torah, which sometimes are as hard as metal, as iron, they're not always soft and gentle. Some of them are pretty firm. Allah has kama kama. How much more so can it carve through my heart, which is after all only flesh and blood? Okay, miyad chazar lomo Torah, and he immediately went to go and learn Torah. He and his son went, and they sat by those who teach the small children. He took his son to cheder. That's what it says here. He and his son went and sat by the melamed tinokos. Okay, and here's another quote. This is from the letters of Rav Yisrael Salanter. Al yipo leva adam belamdo musar. A person shouldn't let his heart fall. He shouldn't get too discouraged when learning musar. Ve'eneno mispael and feels that he has not been affected by the musar he learned. Ve'ein roshem benafsho motzeis l'shanos darko. And he feels a person's learning musar and he feels that it's not having an impact on his soul. It's, it's enough to change his ways. It is absolutely faithful, true knowledge. You can count on it. Even if the impact is not visible to our physical eyes, inside your mind, somewhere, you can see the impact. And over a long amount of time, and all the collecting together of all the different impressions, a person becomes a different person. So this is a different example. This is the impressions on our mind can come from what we see or from what we visualize and how we think. And those impressions, though, that are what we see visually, that can have an immediate impression. The impression of what we see inside of our minds can take a long, long time. Okay, so again, we have this contrast. Okay. The Maharal says, I saw this in the Siddur Maharal, he says it on this, He says, we have this idea, Tcheles reminds one of the sea, the sea reminds one of the sky, the sky reminds one of the Kisei HaKavod. So he says, we could explain about Tcheles, which reminds about the Kisei HaKavod, 
you shall see it and you shall remember all the mitzvahs Hashem. And the Gemara in Menachos Mem Gimel says, Someone who keeps the mitzvah of tzitzis, it's as if he's greeting the shechina. And, and pnei hashechina means like directly in the presence of. So it's not just greeting from afar. Since the mitzvah of tzitzis says, you'll see him which could be it, because in Hebrew doesn't have it. Perhaps this vision is what you're seeing is something much, much higher, more elevated. Meaning, by looking at the treles, you'll see something much more elevated. You'll see godliness, and it's as if you saw the shechina. It's not that you saw the shechina in the treles, but somehow it raises up your vision, meaning you can choose what you look at and you can choose to look at something that will raise you up to see something even loftier than the thing you're looking at. And that's kind of where we're going to go with this today. This is the direction we're slowly headed. Um, and for the most part, it has to do with the direction we're looking at. And that's kind of the magic of this. Is, actually, I'll show you a, a table. Really, it's a table we already did. Mm -hmm. Oh, I tiled it away completely. Oh, that's really, it's the last table that we did. The only thing is that I did the, I did the black lines differently. Mm -hmm. So I left this here, and I made this line just a plain line, and I put the, the thick black line here. Because Techelas is really at this level. So the idea is you see this outlined, and then you see this outlined going up. Which kind of helps you see the idea. Just, it's just a little thing. But it helps you realize that the message of Techelas is looking at the physical, and interacting with the physical, and doing mitzvahs in the physical, and choosing what we look at in the physical. And in doing that, creating a channel that lets us look at something more elevated. Thank you for the chart. So that was, <laughs> that's all I did. It's the, the information is the same. Um, it's the chart that's it's online on the, on the shear in the other classes section on Sivan and Zivulun. So it, you'll see it's the same material. I took out the Paseel column, even though data-wise it appears to support what I said that time about Paseel. <laughs> but I took it out, and I just... It's just a question of which lines are more emphasized to understand this idea that it's working at the level of seeing in the physical, and yet this idea that it brings us up to see something higher. Okay, now I'm going to read you a passage from the Rabbeinu Bachya. Uve Medrash Tanchuma. It says in the Midrash Tanchuma, Ve'asu lahem tzitzis. You should make for yourself tzitzis. I should really start making these into handouts so you could enjoy reading them along with me. There's no reason I have to read them on my own and you listen. It's much more interesting. We'll have to, I have to get a copy machine downstairs, I think. Would be, that would be so awesome. I can't believe I never thought of that. That's it. A little one. Because what I end up doing is I sit down here and prepare and I take pictures out of the books and email them to myself and then I go upstairs later and I print out a whole bunch of those and I come and slide them into place. And then I'm not going to like, get, and sometimes I don't know till after I'm preparing which ones are going to be used and which ones aren't and which sections. 
But the truth is, if it were, that's an interesting idea. Not glamorous, and not elegant for the dining room, but it would be interesting. I need one that looks like a credenza on the outside. <laughs> in the kitchen, right? Because there's so much. There's nothing in the kitchen. Okay. Yeah, I put it on top of the microwave. That's right. Over <laughs> copies at the same that's time. Right. And my dinner. <laughs> put it in the bathroom. <laughs> the Medrash Talhuma says, and you shall make for your, they shall, the Asulahem, they shall make tzitzis. That was the beginning of the paragraph. Zesha Kosovomer, this in what the, the verse says in Yeshaya, Hashem Chafetz Laman Tzidko, Yagdil Torah V'yadir. The concept of the Asulahem Tzitzis, tell the Jews and they will make tzitzis for themselves. This is the same idea as what the prophet Isaiah said when he said, Hashem chafetz l'ma'an tzidko, God desires that a person, well, I don't even know how to translate this. Maybe I won't try. He desires righteousness. Yagdil Torah v'yadir. And therefore, he makes Torah great and mighty. I'm sure I translated that wrong. So, so there. HaKadosh Baruch Hu <laughs> Not going to be able to run off and get a reliable translation of Yeshaya in less than one minute. Maybe in 30 seconds, but not less than that. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Nasan Yisrael. Hashem gave the Torah to the Jewish people, Lahan Chilam Chaye Olam, in order to bequeath to them eternal life. Olam Haba, sorry. Chaye Olam Haba. Velohi Niach Dover Shalom Nasan Bo Yisrael. Therefore, because Hashem wants us to be righteous, he made the Torah big enough to include everything so that there is no area in our lives in which we cannot be doing a mitzvah. There's nothing we can do that we couldn't choose to do it as a mitzvah. Yetzei lacharosh, and now it's going to go through a series of things, at least in this beginning series, which sounds a little funnier to us, but they're more familiar, let's say, if you've learned Hilchos Shabbos. Okay, so these are the stages of preparing to be able to grow the food you need, to be able to make food. That's one of the main ways of categorizing the malachos of Shabbos, right? It's choresh, zorea, kotzer, ma'amer, plowing and planting and um, reaping and gathering. And these are threshing and winnowing. These are all the different steps. So, Yatza Lacharosh, the person goes out to plow, Sivehu, Hashem commanded him in Devarim, Lo Tacharosh Bishor Uvachamor Yachtav. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You can't yoke them, two different animals like that, together. So, all of a sudden, instead of just plowing, the plowing is a mitzvah. It's not just plowing. Every time you put even one ox, but certainly two oxen, together on a yoke, you've actually done a mitzvah. Because you haven't been over, right? Lizroa, he goes to plant the seeds. Lo sizra You may not plant your vineyard as klayim. You can't mix the species. You can mix different strains, but you can't mix species of different plants and plant them in the same place where they might commingle and cross. It's a, it's a, what would be um, and become hybrid because you've done that. Liktzor, he comes to reap. The pasuk says, "Ki siktzor katsircha basade v'shachachta omer basade lo sashuv lakachto." Sounds really familiar because this comes up in Ruth, right? In Rus for Shavuos, 
The Torah says, when you are harvesting your harvest in your field, if you forget a small amount in the field, you may not go back and take it. Okay. So even when you're harvesting and picking what you've grown, that can be a mitzvah. And then what happens? Now you've got your harvest and you're going to go put it away. And you've got a profit. Now you take off Truman Meiser. And now you've ground it up and you're going to knead it into dough. You should take the first piece of the dough and give it to the Kohen. You take some of it off. Now you're going to eat it. Make a bracha on the food. You go to shear a sheep. The first of the shearings you give to the Kohen. If your sheep has a baby, you give the first one to the Kohen. Okay, the animal has a firstborn child, that goes to the Kohen. What about shechting? So not only are there correct, it's interesting, he doesn't say you make a bracha and shecht it, which is also true. <laughs> Shrita is also a mitzvah, he doesn't say that. He says, you give also to the Kohen's roah lechayayim and keva, which is really, I don't know that that's true for all shechita. Maybe. Certainly for karbanos. Okay. And if you're walking along the way and you see a bird nest, you have the opportunity to do shiluach hakein and send away the mother bird before you take the eggs. And if you're and if you're slaughtering a wild animal or a bird, then you have a mitzvah of covering the blood. And if you go to get dressed, don't wear shotness. You have a child, give the boy. If you have a son, give him a bris milah on the eighth day. Being married, you have to separate from your wife at known times. Plant some trees. You wait three years before you take any of the fruit off of them. And even if someone dies. You're not allowed to tear your skin up in mourning. What about getting a haircut? Don't cut off the corners. What if you build a house? Make a maqeh, make a railing around the roof. What if you build a gate? Write a mezuzah on the doorpost of the gate or the doorpost of the house. What if you put on, you know, a shawl? <laughs> you put a talus, right? You put on a garment, a blanket. Make sure it's got tzitzis on it. This one we came across in the past. It is compared to a person who is drowning in the water. What does the steward of the boat do? He throws out to him the rope. And says to him, Hold that rope in your hand and don't let go. Because if you let go, you have no life. There's no hope for your life. Hold on. You see the mashal over here? Don't let go. So every moment of your day allows you to hold on to the rope. There is no area of the day that doesn't have a mitzvah associated with it. And that's because it's our lifeline. Afkan, Amr HaKadosh Baruch Yisrael. So here Hashem says to the Jewish people, it's good preparation really for Kabbalah Satorah. Hashem says to the Jewish people, as long as you're hanging on to the mitzvos, you've got life. As it says, 
you who are clinging to Hashem your God, you are all alive today. Adkan. Or Isamoso, you will see it. What does it mean you'll see it? Mitzvah Shiyehei Nira. It's a mitzvah that should be seen. Therefore, tzitzis are not worn at night. This is the reason that women are putter from the mitzvah of tzitzis. It's considered a time-bound mitzvah because of this verse, that you should see it. Because you should see it and its time is in the day, that's what gives it a time. It is mitzvah's ase shazman grama, a, a positive mitzvah which is time caused. And you will remember the mitzvahs of Hashem and do them because re'ia, sight, vision brings to remembering and remembering brings to action. And you will not go after your hearts and after your eyes. Okay, you know what? I'm going to stop here. I don't want to jump on that one. What I did want to focus on here in the first part of this passage was how how awkward it sounds to modern ears to hear something like this. You go to plow, you have a mitzvah. You go to plant, you have a mitzvah. And as much as we can say, um, look, that's our lifeline, that's what keeps us alive, it still sounds overwhelming and very not modern. I don't know how else to put it. Just very not in tune with our choices, and even with the way we experience life necessarily. We're so segregated from agriculture. And especially that we're segregated from agriculture, so a lot of this stuff isn't my day, right? And what is the seeing, how does the seeing pull it together? Meaning he compared it to being thrown the lifeline, and yet it's all dependent on the seeing of it. Okay, so this is from Rav Leifter's book on tshuva, which we have read from before. And he really is approaching this concept. So I hope you'll forgive me. I'm going to read a few sections, paragraphs here and there, but there is not, literally not possible to say any of this as well as he says it, let alone with the authority with which he says it. The knowledge. Similarly, okay, this quote, this first paragraph, you hear the issue that um, Rav Yisrael Salanter's letter was. Similarly, in our avoda, we cannot expect that our personal ratzon, which has existed for many years, will all of a sudden disappear. Here's the I. I want this, and all of a sudden, I'm gonna like read an inspiring story or a book of Musar. And I will no longer have any ego and any will that is in contradiction to God's will. It's not realistic. But we can search for and uncover different dimensions to our personalities. There's more in us than we know. And these can provide the basis for our getting pleasure and satisfaction from fulfilling Hashem's commandments. This is a, a way, uh, a shortcut. You didn't get rid of the fact that you have this ratzon that's there all this time, but you can discover in yourself how you can get pleasure and satisfaction from doing the mitzvos. All of a sudden, you uncover a ratzon. And this relates to practical actions, practically doing the mitzvos. 
The goal of tshuva is to return to our original pure state, the one from which we have deviated. But as much as we engage in the work of tshuva, we may still not reach this position. Our actions might not necessarily express a complete fulfillment of Hashem's will. Okay. This is serious Kabbalah Satora work, because yes, if we thought about it in Elul, we'd say it's tshuva work. But I'd say let's, let's take this approach where we might not be able to immediately fix the problems. There's still a direction in which we can be mikabel and want to receive the Torah with love as Hashem is giving us the Torah with love. On the one hand, we develop a new set of desires reflecting our acceptance of Hashem's authority. These desires may even have become deeply rooted, but at the same time, we remain in the grip of the old desires which block the acceptance. So even if we can find, we can unearth and uncover and discover in ourselves new areas of Ratzon that rejoice in Hashem's will. How do we deal with the fact that we have not yet taken away these other Ratzons that we have that aren't so amazing? We are, in a sense, still trapped in gullus. This is a personal gullus. This is inside ourselves that we're in gullus. To combat this, a practical response is needed, and this should come in the form of a small action in accordance with Rav Yisrael Salanter's guidance. Right? That's not a surprise. Make it a small action. By committing... Sorry. Yeah, that's the principle of the whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, as, as Rabbi Kellen puts it, you have to fly under the radar. Right. So he, he's going to tie this together with his approach, which seems to be how the Ramchal flies under the radar, which is by working inside, even before it comes outside. It's interesting. Okay. By committing to a small action, we recognize that we may not be able to immediately fulfill Hashem's will completely, but we nevertheless need to concretize the process. When we make a limited but practical undertaking, we can then stand as Bali Chuva. Even though we haven't, commit, we haven't finalized, we, even the, the commitment that we make is so small that the problem still remains. But the fact that we have taken a small step in the right direction means we are people who are returning and who are correcting. This might appear to be the last step in our avoda. Right? You want to do tshuva, so that's what you do, and now you're a baal However, according to the nefesh hachaim, a further step is required. Rav Chaim speaks of an idea of introducing the nefesh into the body. This is a very profound concept, and much work is needed to understand it. But for our purposes, we can understand the suggestion as referring to a cultivation of a certain type of sensitivity and awareness. It has to do with how we perceive and respond to the world so that the world conveys to us not messages of Tuma, which lead us to Averos, but messages of Kedusha directing us to Mitzvos. We're starting to close in on the idea. Because remember, what was difficult about that Rabbeinu Bachya was that's not how we experience the world. And what Rabbi Leichter is saying over here is there is a way 
that we can see the world and respond to the world so that the world is telling us about Kedusha, which leads us to mitzvos. Re'iyah mevia lidei zechira, zechira mevia lemaseh, as opposed to messages of Tumah, which lead us the other direction, chas With this explanation in mind, we can better understand the third paragraph of the Shema, which is entirely concerned with the development of sensitivity and awareness. And it shall be for you tzitzis, and you shall see it, and you shall remember all the commandments of Hashem and perform them. This is our verse. This third paragraph is about training ourselves to appreciate certain messages that the world emits and projects. As the Talmud teaches, when we see the string of Tcheles, we shouldn't just see a string. Its blue color reminds us of the sea, whose blue color reminds us of the sky, which in turn reminds us of Hashem's throne of glory. Through something small, we're able to see a much bigger picture. A remarkable pattern thus emerges. The dimyon, dimyon meaning our ability to imagine and visualize visual type of pictures, even if it's not what comes into our eyes. The dimyon has come full circle. As explained above, we begin our avoda by distancing ourselves from dimyon. Right? This is the idea we're always hearing about. Don't look at this. Don't look at that. By using our seichel, our mind, to accept the yoke of Hashem's authority over our lives. That was v'hayayim shamoa. That was v'hayayim shamoa, right? He shamru lachem pen yifte levavchem v'sartem. That's v'hayim shamoa. The work of the seichel is to touch the alevavchem, part of ourselves. We need to use our minds, our intellect, our free choice to affect our hearts and our emotions, upon which, according to Rav Yisrael, the Shema is built. Once this work is done, the dimyon turns from a negative force into a positive one. And this very same force must, at this point, be harnessed for the purposes of our avoda. And that was the initial first force of the chet, and that's our yeah. way to go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. Again, I don't know that I've ever seen elsewhere someone straight on tackling something which is explicit to this pasuk. Well, I guess I've seen it in Rav Hirsch. Rav is is sort of trying to scream it out. Didn't God give you eyes and a heart? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that, right? But he doesn't say, didn't God give you imagination as a result? Well, that's what the eyes and the heart really are, right? It's the combination of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but yeah, it's not typical in works of Musser to hear this. We hear about the danger of the dimyon, and this is completely new, and it is rooted in this pasuk. Our dimyon plays, you see why I couldn't just tell this. This is like, you have to hear it from him. Our dimyon plays a crucial role in the cultivation of a higher level of sensitivity and awareness. Our capacity to imagine allows us to see things in the world beyond their natural limitations. It enables us to relate to something small, to a particular detail, and grasp the overarching principle that emerges from it. I just want to remind you that on Shabbos, if you were, for those who were here on Shabbos, we talked about the Torah was given at Har Sinai with all of its general principles and detailed principles, the details of the mitzvos. Mm-hmm. You see how this idea is fundamental over here, where Shema is about Yichud Hashem, the Ohavdash Hashem Okecha, and now somehow we've drilled down into the details of doing each and every mitzvah. Okay. 
Dimyon allows us to relate to something small, to a particular detail, and grasp the overarching principle that emerges from it. We cannot do this with analytical thinking. If we rely exclusively on a Seichel approach, we run the risk of becoming overly preoccupied with the details and failing to see the broader view to which they point. We may lose the ability to distinguish the forest from the trees. Through using our powers of imagination, we are able to overcome this. This is why maybe women have so no. I think probably. I think probably. So this, this is serious stuff. This is like, right, to be able to, and we know it in the negative. We know it in the negative, that you see something, and once you see it and you, and you see the, the idea of it that somebody made for you in this video, you know, this biased news outlet, it is very difficult to reason with someone that the details are different. That's the negative side of it. But there's a positive side, which is that you can have all the details and have them right and fail to understand, but what does this mean? What, what does it mean? How does it feel to be like that? I can learn about all the mitzvahs. I can hear the Rabbeinu Bachi say, you go outside and you're going to plow and then you're going to plant and then you're going to reap and then you're going to harvest and then you're going to knead it and then you're going to wear it and then you're going <coughs> to... But, but that's a lot of details. What does that feel like to live like that? This is the missing piece. This is the Ur Isamoso. Uzachartem es kol Hashem. Starting with the seeing with the impact of it as an experience and feeling it, and from there remembering all the mitzvahs. To return, um, okay, now he's gonna, he's, he was giving an analogy earlier about marriage, so he's gonna take an example in a marriage. If a husband is given a bowl of soup by his wife, he can take away two very different messages. This is not the details of the soup. And it's not thinking, oh, I could be very appreciative, right? This is the feeling of the soup. When that soup is put in front of him, there's a feeling and a message. And there are two possible ones that he will give as examples. He can view the soup as a means to bring pleasure to his taste buds and to satisfy his belly. Alternatively, by using his imagination, he can relate to the soup in much broader terms. He can consider the fact that his wife worked hard to prepare it and that in doing so, she was thinking about his well-being. I think we're more accustomed to this in other things like lighting Shabbos candles and stopping and thinking about what am I doing? I'm bringing light into the world, right? We take the action and we can use our mind's imaginative and visualization qualities to think about what more there is in meaning than the action on its own in isolation. But he's saying we can do this in the mundane. That was what the Rabbeinu Bachir was trying to tell us, but he was telling it to us in, let's say, old-fashioned language. Or perhaps it's not. It's eternal language, but it's a language we don't speak very fluently. In this way, the bowl of soup becomes much more than just a bowl of soup. It conveys a bigger message, including an appreciation for the chesed. We can illustrate this basic idea further by going back to our example of taivas achila, which is a desire for food. 
Someone who is guided by his taivas achila experiences the force of his desire not only as an inner urge. We all know this. We just don't think about it. It's not just about, oh, I want. He experiences his external surroundings in terms of the internal taiva. So the world itself, the fruit, the meat, the wine, speaks to him in, term, in the language of taiva sachila, telling him, partake of me and enjoy me. This is advertising. This is what advertising is. It's teaching you and training you to look at everything in the world as a taiva, to say, come get me. That's what it does. So we are in a horrible environment right now because we are surrounded not only by what we have projected and therefore receive from every image we see in the world, everything we see actually is now, I wouldn't say perverted, but is now twisted to serve a negative message to us, but we have thousands and millions of people actively working to cultivate the problem for us so they can earn money. They're helping us. It wasn't bad enough, you know? This is why he will place the apple in front of his mouth, murmur an inaudible blessing, and take a hearty bite. Not because he started with a taiva, because he saw the apple. The apple says, eat me. Food, sweet. This message can be changed. The world, the very same world, the very same meat and wines, food and drink can tell the very same person an entirely different story. Conveying the emuna and chesed of Hashem rather than the selfish gratification of taiva sachila. And in appreciation of the new message he sees, he would then take the fruit, close his eyes, and recite a bracha with appreciation and gratitude. This is, this is unbelievable stuff. Because I don't know how aware I was before I read this chapter that the world was speaking to me and I was hearing it in according to whatever language I was listening to or seeing it in accordance with which channel I was tuned into. But it's absolutely true. As soon as he says it, I know it's true. Everything in the world is calling to me to relate to it. And it's a question of how do I see it? And it is possible to see things differently. That's, that's the other remarkable thing, is that it doesn't have to be that way. And we all know about how things call to us in the negative. And he's telling us something very, very deep and important, which is that the world can call to us something positive. Our challenge is to shift the way in which we relate to the world. To do, and, and that was the message of Tzitzis, of Tzachelis, is that the world itself, when you look at it, should tell you about something higher, should bring you up from the details, from the small, from the low, up into something higher. It is to develop a higher level of sensitivity and awareness so that the world sends us messages not of Tuma but of Kedusha. It's about grasping the bigger picture to which the small things point. This is a lifelong process. And ironically, our capacity for Dimyon is pivotal to it. This is the incredible, I don't know, he says irony, let's say irony. The irony that it is our, that which could cause us to stumble most of the time is actually the tool ultimately that we require to fix it. 
And you shall not stray after your heart and after your eyes after which you go astray. That will be the next pasuk, right? Lo sasu, or, lo sasu, this pasuk at the end. Lo sasuru, you should not stray. In light of the above explanation, we can better appreciate this injunction, which is directed against seeing negative things in the world. We're essentially being told that we must protect and preserve our sensitivity so that the world will continue to send us messages of Kiddusha. The things you put into your mind leave an imprint. That was the message of Rav Yisrael Salanter in his letter. And each one is a small imprint. It's a drop of water on a stone. But the imprint is happening over and over and over again. Everything we look at, everything we see, everything we read is making this little pattern in our mind. And the way that we think then becomes changed by what we're seeing and experiencing, which means that something might be permitted and I still might choose to say, I don't want to read that book. I don't want to read Harry Potter today because if I do, it will not be in alignment with the pattern laid down by reading Rabbi Leichter's book about Shuva. And so my thoughts will be confused. They'll be traveling on tracks, some of which are teshuva and truth, and some of which are false and just made up stuff. So if I'm trying really hard to get my thinking lined up and get my actions in order as they should be, then I might decide not to look at some things, not because they're forbidden. They're not forbidden. But because I want something more than that. And I know that whatever is going in is laying a pattern. And it's like a bunch of those transparent overlays. And you lay them down, and you lay them down, and you lay them down. And if they're all patterns of MS, then the picture, even if there's different lines in different places, it will all form a picture that is true. And the train of, the, of our minds, on the tracks in our minds, you know, with our thoughts, will tend to run along the pattern of what is true, because that's what's there. That's the imprint. That's the carved out path that's been made by the water on the stone. But if we're full of a lot of other stuff, it's jumbled. And it can get in the way of seeing, of interpreting what comes in in accordance with the messages of Kedusha. In a sense, then, there is a parallel between the Parsha of Tzitzis and the festival of Sukkot. Because Sukkot follows Yom Kippur after we have done Shuvah. And we have to take tshuva to the next stage. That would be very, very interesting to learn about the Yomim Noraim as they correspond to Shema. As indicated in the Nefesh HaChayim, we need to develop a higher level of sensitivity and awareness so that we can infuse Kedusha into worldly matters. This is the Avodah of Sukkot. With the mitzvah of Arbaminim and dwelling in a sukkah, we work on experiencing Kedusha in worldly matters. We're trying to sit somewhere where the place we're sitting is telling us about Kedusha and hold something in our hands where the thing that we're holding, it's just a citrus and a branch and some leaves, but it's telling us something of Kedusha. So the fact that Sukkot is fraught with symbolism isn't because the symbols are empty. 
It's because we're trying to live in a way where the world itself is talking to us about Kedusha. And this sensitivity and awareness in turn generates feelings of joy. So our avoda then is not only a question of bechira, which is the intellect, of choosing what's right. It's also about, whoever's listening to this, if you're, never mind. I'm going to shake the foundations of some people's philosophy. <laughs> our avoda is also about tikkun olam, repairing the world. What is the concept of tikkun olam? It is dealt with at great length in the Nefesh HaChayim, and it is tremendously profound. Beheld in straightforward terms, and in light of the approach outlined above, we could argue that tikkun olam is a crucial part of our avoda. By cultivating a greater degree of sensitivity and awareness, we can contribute to mending the world. Which is what? to change the messages which the world sends us, that is to change the world itself. There's a line. Tikkun mm. olam, <laughs> what does it mean fixing the world? The world was created for the purpose of being an interactive environment to spirituality. The world is the touch screen to the spiritual operating system. It's there for us to interact with Kedusha. And it's messed up. And when we look at it, we see messages of Tuma. Repairing the world means changing the messages the world gives us so that those flowers have a chance to fulfill their full potential as flowers because what they express into the world is something of holiness. When the world starts to evoke messages of Kedusha, encouraging us to do mitzvos the world gets turned into a base medrash of avoda. The repair of the world lies in how we perceive and respond to it. Wow. Could we have wow. This? I have no idea. It's quite a lot of pages. I don't know what the halacha is. I'll try and find out. Like, at what point does it become too much? Wow. It's astonishing. I know. I, so thank you for forgiving me because it's not classy to read a lot when you're supposed to be giving a shear because it's harder to listen to someone reading, but there's no way. Yeah, this is a whole different meaning of Shema, or Isemoso. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it and see what it's telling you. Which comes back to say that fixing the world is fixing ourselves. We're going back. It's inside of ourselves that this happens, how we perceive and how we respond to it, and yet it is a reality outside of us too. It's both it might not fly well in a conservative temple. <laughs> the world is supposed to be telling us about holiness and about refining ourselves and about doing mitzvot and allowing the world to do that. How we allow the world to fully be fulfilled in its own creation through how we relate to it. Okay. Now let's remember that medrash. Or isem oso, you should see it. Oso, velo osam. Him, not them. Not the tzitzis. If you do this, if you do this avoda of making tzitzis and looking at the tzachelas and seeing it, ki'ilu ataroa kisei hakavod. You know what you're seeing? You're seeing the kisei hakavod in the tzachelas. Shehudome le tzachelas. It's a whole different meaning, right? One, or isem oso, 
one who wears tzitzis, it doesn't say who wears, one who is careful to do the mitzvah of tzitzis properly is like he greeted the shechina. Starts to, starts to all come together. These, aren't, these statements are not just out there. It's nice you hear like, well, because I'll say it's this. But you, you don't have any sense of where it came from. It just sort of popped out, right? But it doesn't just come out. It's all based on something, whether we know it or not. Okay, now technically we're done, so we're done. <laughs>